few months back, my dad put me on to a show called Alone. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's on the History Channel. And it is a self-documented series about 10 individuals that are taken into territory, wilderness, that is um, a survival contest. And if they survive a total of 100 days, they'll win a million dollars. They are only allowed to take six things with them uh, to survive over those hundred days. Now, they are isolated from each other, and they're isolated from all other human contact, except when they have a team show up to do a medical checkup on them. And so this team comes out, and they will make sure that they're able to continue in the contest. Now, these individuals can tap out anytime they want. Sometimes they will tap out for a variety of reasons. And in the seventh season of this show, so there's a number of seasons to it, they are in the east arm of the Great Slave Lake in Northwest Territory of Canada. And it starts out beautiful, but then winter sets in. And as winter sets in, they have to find food and they have to survive. Well, a number of them drop out due to frostbite, starvation. One individual tore his meniscus. But there was one individual in this particular season that had to tap out because he lost his fire starter. So every individual would bring a fire starter so that they could start the fire that would keep them warm and cook their food, etc., etc., But when he lost his fire starter, the only thing he had left was to start a fire the good old-fashioned way that the Boy Scouts did, rubbing sticks together to create some type of friction that would start a fire. Well, obviously, in the bitter cold Arctic, he couldn't do that, so he had to tap out. And when the fire went out, he was out. So we've been in this series called Phoenix Arise, and we've been using fire as a metaphor, and we've been talking a little bit about this mythical bird that rises up out of the ash heap and is able to overcome the ash heap that is left behind when a fire dies out. We began talking a little bit about little fires everywhere. In our world, all we need to do is turn on the news, and we see that there are hot spots all around the world that create fear and anxiety within us. It takes a toll on us emotionally and psychologically. It can cause us even to doubt the goodness of God, and sometimes it will come by those who doubt that there is the existence of God. And so some of the contemporary atheists that have put books out in the last 10 years are calling upon people to do away with the concept of God. But we talked a little bit about a man named Moses, and we talked about his time out in the wilderness where he took the flocks out to feed them. And in many ways, his life was tapped out like this show alone until one day God showed up And there was a burning bush that was not consumed. It draws his attention. He goes over and God speaks to him. And it begins this journey of becoming the great deliverer 
of the nation of Israel out of bondage to Egypt. We talked a little bit about how many times we are salted by fire, to use the expression of Jesus. Then, in the second week, we talked a little bit about rekindling hope, that when our fire dies out and we try to rekindle it, the question becomes, with what type of fuel do we try to use to rekindle the fire? And many times there's bad fuel that we use to keep our fire going. The best fuel that we talked about was seeing Jesus with new eyes. We talked about a woman named Mary Magdalene. We talked about the two disciples on the Emmaus Road and how they misunderstood the mission of Jesus and they had to re, uh, refocus what Jesus was all about. Last week we talked a little bit about a man named Nicodemus and we talked about how the fire sometimes is extinguished but just for the night. Here is this religious individual that comes to Jesus by night and it is there that he talks to Jesus, he turns away, he goes back into the darkness and we wonder if he is going to emerge. Jesus told him, you must be born again or in other words, take it from the top, rethink everything. In other words, your religion works only until it doesn't work anymore. And I think sometimes that's what happens in contemporary life. Religious uh, religion does not work for us anymore. And because of that, we turn away, we go back into the night, and yet this man, Nicodemus, emerges back into the light when he defends Jesus against some of his colleagues. And then finally, when Jesus is taken down from the cross, he is the one that brings spices to embalm his body before he is placed in the, the tomb. So that's what we have talked about so far. Today I want to close this series with a message that is entitled, An Ember Still Glows. Now if you've ever put out a fire and you went back into the house, only to look out the window and to see there's still a hot ember that is below the rubble. And that ember has potential. It has the potential to rekindle a fire that we thought has long been extinguished. So there is this chance, as long as that ember glows, that a new faith, a renewed energy can come. So when the fire dies out, is there the possibility of finding that renewed focus again? So we want to talk about a man by the name of Elijah this morning. We read out of 1 Kings chapter 19, the first 13 verses, and I read out of the NIV this morning, even though in your liturgy uh, it's the Revised Standard Version, but the reason I read out of the NIV this morning is because it uses a particular word that I want to uh, think about here this morning. It's the word whisper that God comes to Elijah in a whisper. But before we get to that, we need to know the story again. So Elijah is a hero in the Old Testament, and he seems to be an unflappable prophet. He's an individual that will confront his entire nation for going wayward in their worship of God. What we are told is in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, there's a man by the name of Ahab that comes to the throne, and he is an individual, along with his wife, 
that sets up altars to the storm god, Baal. Now, Baal was worshipped alongside of Yahweh, the god of the Israelites, because they had the superstition that you need to keep Baal happy if you're going to get enough rain to produce enough crops to produce enough food for your family. And so here we find all these altars uh, that are set up for Baal in the territory of Samaria. And Ahab is an individual that is provoking God to jealousy because God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So then in chapter 17, we are introduced to Elijah. And he tells Ahab, listen, because you have gone wayward and you have violated the covenant that God made with you back on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, he says, there's not going to be rain for three years. Now, can you imagine that? There's going to be a three-year period of time. We cannot imagine that in Northeast Ohio. There has never been a time where we've gone a prolonged period of time without rain. But can you imagine going without rain for a period of three years? It will produce famine. Obviously, crops will fail. There will not be enough food for the populace. And more than anything else, this particular judgment is going to be one that judges Baal, the god of the storm, who has been decommissioned for three years, you might say. Well, after three years, what we're told in 1 Kings chapter 17 is that God lifts this judgment. And you can read chapter 17. It's really interesting. Elijah kind of listens. I hear like there's some rumble in the distance as if the storm clouds are gathering and the skies open up and it rains. And you would think that that would be enough to get everybody back on track and worshiping the God of Israel. But no, there are all of these prophets of Baal. And finally, in chapter 18, what we are told is that there's going to be a showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Now Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, has been killing all the Hebrew prophets who have been criticizing their reign and criticizing the population for worshiping Baal. And finally in chapter 18, there is this absolute amazing story that has been uh, written for us when Elijah says in verse 7 to the people, "'How long will you waver between your two opinions?' If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And then Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up an altar. And this altar is going to be a, uh, a proof test as to who is the true God. And so he tells the prophets of Baal to set up an altar, put wood around it, and pray for Baal to bring down fire and to light this altar and it will prove that Baal is God. Well, nothing happens. And if you ever want to uh, read an interesting Old Testament uh, version of trash talk, Elijah does so. So he taunts all of these prophets of Baal by saying, well, maybe you need to shout louder. Maybe Baal is asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. There's all kinds of things in chapter 18 that's quite amazing, really. Nothing happens. Even the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves and they cry out that God will show up. Their God, Baal, will show up. 
It doesn't happen. So then Elijah comes forth and he comes to the altar and he prays. And it's a simple prayer. In chapter 18, verse 36, it says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning and that you are turning their hearts back again and then it says next verse then the fire of the lord fell and burned up the sacrifice on this altar now you would think that that would be enough proof right not so so Jezebel hears about all of this and Elijah uh, puts the prophets of Baal to death that's a conundrum that we need to think through at times. Why would he do that? But Elijah is proving that the God of Israel is the true God. Jezebel hears this. And Jezebel then says, I'm going to kill that man. I'm going to kill that man. So here's a guy that has seen God provide a miracle of three years of drought and then rain. He's seen fire fall from heaven to start the fire on the altar. But once Jezebel speaks up and says, I'm going to kill him, he runs like Forrest Gump. I mean, he just runs for a day's journey and beyond. And when he hears the word that he is going to be killed, he travels for 40 days and 40 nights, the text tells us, until he comes to Mount Horeb. And it is here at Mount Horeb, he hides in a cave. And as he hides in a cave, he's full of anxiety. And his fire has gone out, so much so that it says in chapter 19 that he wants God to take his life. He says in verse 4, "'Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors.'" So he's hiding in this cave. God makes provision for him. But finally God comes and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And so God tells Elijah to step out of the cave, to go out and stand on a mountain, and the presence of the Lord is going to pass by. There's an earthquake that happens. There's wind that happens, and there's fire that happens. But each time the text tells us God was not in the wind, God was not in the earthquake, and God was not in the fire. But then it says in verse 12 of chapter 19, after the earthquake came the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, he went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? A second time, same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one that's left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And then God says to him in verse 15 of chapter 19, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. 
and go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. And he does. What motivated him? It wasn't the wind. It wasn't the earthquake. It wasn't the fire. It was the whisper. Now, an ember can still glow in our life because God can still speak. I truly believe that. What are you doing here, Elijah? Have you ever kind of sensed that question inside your spirit and in your soul? What are you doing here, Larry? What are you doing here, Joe? What are you doing here, Lisa? God has a way of whispering in our spirit. And when he does so, he can rekindle the fire that we thought went out. There are times in our life when we just want to give up. You've been there, I've been there. We want to go hide in a cave. And we say, if I'm going to continue on, something significant has to happen. It's got to be as powerful as an earthquake. It has to be as strong as the wind. It has to be as hot as a fire. But God doesn't show up. And it's in that moment. We all have to choose whether to believe that God is still involved in the midst of our life or whether he has abandoned us. But God usually does not show up in all the ways we want him to. He shows up in the whisper. God still speaks, and therefore an ember can still glow. In those moments of our life, when we're like Elijah, when we're full of fear, anxiety, depression, worry, when we wonder how we can take the next step because this, this, or that has happened, Do we ever kind of pull back and just get quiet for a few moments? Elijah encountered what is called a mystical experience. It's the mystical experience, that is, God and you. Not God and everybody else, just God and you. That enables the phoenix to rise again. Theologian Karl Barth once said, it's the original and ultimate fact. What he meant by that is, you can doubt, you can doubt, you can doubt, you can doubt, but you can never outrun that moment when you felt God in your heart, when you heard God's whisper in your head. This morning, there are really no arguments I can give you to convince you that God exists. There's some apologetic type arguments that are usually made, but they fall short. There is an ember that glows inside of you, though. And I can't give you anything that is verifiable in a scientific or historical laboratory, but there is the whisper inside of your soul. And when we have had an experience where we have felt God has prompted us in the cave of our own heart, 
when we met him there. That's our firm foundation for the future. You know, there's always somebody else that's going to come along to criticize our faith. There's some people that will come along with some arguments that will cause us to question what we believe. But betting on literal, scientific, and historical facts all fall short of something. And that is the experience you have had with God. And no one can take that away from you. You cannot let other people get inside your head because you know what you know. You know that at some point in your life, God seemed very real to you. And he met you in moments. And he told you he loves you. And he also says things like, what are you doing here, Elijah? I could produce an earthquake, I could produce wind, I could produce a fire, but all of those things come and go. But you'll remember the whisper. The whisper that is placed inside of your spirit. That's a better foundation than trying to figure out how to get this book right. The Bible's a wonderful resource, but it's not the foundation of my faith. It's that relationship I have with God that goes back to the mid-70s for me. I don't know for you when that happened, but God showed up in a whisper. And in that whisper, He gave to me enough to believe. You know, a lot of times we use the Bible in a variety of ways, but To think this is the only thing that produces faith is to put more weight on the Bible than it can bear. Because there are some things in the Bible that are quite difficult to understand. I mean, if the only reason you believe is the Bible, you're going to have to justify slavery that's in the Bible. You're going to have to justify some type of violent, genocidal extermination of groups of people. In the end, to say that my faith and the Bible are the same thing is to make a mistake because it's totally untenable. In the name of Biblicism, that is, I believe every word that is here that is some type of linear book that I'm to take equally authoritative, well, you know what you'll end up doing? You'll end up defending sin. You have a better revelation, and so do I. What if our faith is built on the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and the best way to know it is that experience that we had at some moment in time, and hopefully it's repeated, but at least at some moment in time, we came to know that God is real. And that God is love. Because there's that ember that still glows inside of me. There's a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal. He's a mathematician. He lived from 1623 to 1662. He was a genius mathematician. 
He came to faith when he was 12 years old, and he referred to that time of his life as the night of fire. Let me read a portion of it for you. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy and peace, God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, the God shall be my God. The world forgotten and everything except God, he can only be found by the ways taught in the Gospels, greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world had not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy, everlasting joy in return for one day's effort on earth. I will not forget thy word. Amen. He could also say, I will not forget thy whisper. Amen. So after this mystical night of fire, Pascal understood the limits of reason. And he made a statement that I think is so true and is illustrated in the person of Elijah. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. The heart has its reasons of which reason or thinking or logic knows nothing. It is the heart which perceives God and not reason. Now reason is good and important. And it's important to try to build a logical faith. But that's not the foundation of our faith. Theology is an activity of the mind and it's very helpful. And the Bible is a record of people who encountered God along the way. They're not perfect by any means. And we can analyze it and we can exegete it and we can teach it. And that's what we do on a weekly basis. But the experience of God belongs to the heart. Those moments in the cave. Those moments when you're alone. Those moments when you make a choice to tap out or you'll continue. Is in the heart God whispers to us and we know for him to be real And as the old saying goes, a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. A person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. We seek answers, understandably so. But we must seek God even more than answers. And that is the ultimate ember that still glows. And it's the spark that can start a new fire You see, Christianity is essentially about experiencing the living God and then telling our story of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And that is a cycle that we go through many times over the course of our life. It's a story, though, of an ember that still glows because there's a God who still speaks. We often need to be alone in a quiet place to hear the whisper of God. What are you doing here, Elijah? Or as I might put in the title of this series, what are you doing here? Phoenix, arise. So I have a video I want to show you. This man, Elijah, is not the only example of the whisper of God. He's a man just like us, James in the New Testament tells us. 
I asked this past week Shelley Bazelak to give to us a testimony of her life. If you know anything about Shelley, um, she is the first one that really began to crack the door open for SDNI when we were thinking about the LGBTQ community, and, and uh, she really opened the door for us, but she had her own experience. So I asked her if she would shoot a video of a couple of minutes to tell her story a little bit, and you're going to watch that as we close this morning. But the sound of it is a, she recorded it on the balcony of their condo down in Florida. It's it's got a lot of background noise to it. So we're going to try to clean it up for um, the online post, but you're going to have to listen kind of closely to it, okay? So here is Shelly's story in two minutes of how God whispered to her. Let's listen. like to share with you a time in my life that God literally spoke to my heart. I was raised spiritually in a very um, fundamental legalistic church who knew all the right and wrong things and what exactly was sin and what wasn't sin. And one of those things that was sin was being a member of the LGBTQ community. Well, fast forward to about the last 13 years, I really started to get to know some LGBTQ people, and I learned their stories, and all of a sudden I learned that it was not a choice, that it was the way they were born. Because all my spiritual life I've been taught that this was not the thing to do. That's all that that I know. And so I started researching and reading and praying. And one day after lots of research, I decided to sit down with God and just ask him to have a good heart-to-heart with God. So I said, and I was very earnestly praying. I was crying out to God. I just said, God, I don't know what's right. I've been taught one thing, but it disagrees with what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is that you created people there. And before I could even finish talking, it was as though the hand of God had flipped the switch on my back. And I knew I just knew that it was okay for people to be gay or bi or trans or however God created you. And he he does not make mistakes. And God is still working today. He still performs miracles and he loves you. So let me just reiterate a couple of points because it was kind of difficult to follow. So she grew up in a very legalistic, religious background. And of course, she was taught that God hates the LGBT community. She got to know some LGBT individuals and began to see how precious image bearers they are of God. 
So she started doing research, read book after book after book, couldn't be convinced. So she got into the cave of a quiet time with God and began to say, God, you've got to show me. You've got to show me. And you heard her say, even while she was in the midst of prayer, it felt like a switch was turned on her back. And from that moment on, that whisper that came into her spirit allowed her to be an advocate, to be an intercessor, to be someone that serves this community, to be someone that helped our family. And so what would have happened if she wouldn't have just slowed down, went into the cave of solitude and asked God to speak to her? Would she carry the prejudice and judgmentalism that she had in her heart? I don't know. But I do know this. I'm so very glad that God met her there. And in the midst of that moment, he kind of opened a door that allowed her and others to go through. So the way I want to close this morning is I'd like to do a meditation. And this meditation, you can watch the screen or you can close your eyes. But it's a song by Josh Groban And it's kind of pictured of being raised up. You raise me up. Because if you went to the very end of Elijah's life, what we're told is that in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, so it goes into the 2 Kings book, when it came time for his journey to be done, It says in verse 11, as they walked along, him and Elisha, his successor, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. I don't know how to explain that. Don't have a clue how to explain what happened. But he was a phoenix, That arose. And so can we when we're in the lowest places of our life. So I'm going to ask Corey to stop uh, the recording at this point so we don't have another musical violation (laughs) online. And I want you to just meditate on this song and then we will be done. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, You have the ability to raise us up, to take us out of the ash heap, to make us a phoenix. It's my prayer today that we'll take these examples of these men and women that we've talked about over the last four weeks to renew our heart and to renew our life and to renew our focus, to be able to love as you love. Make us your servants, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.